through 7. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. My name is also Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. I'm getting really, really excited about this all-people's picnic. This picnic that we've done church-wide has been a tradition going back many years, but this unique twist, I'm super excited about it because one of our goals as a church If you've been here for a while, you know we like food, and we want to be the number one feasting church in Orange County, and that's going to be our tagline. It's going to give me, this picnic's going to give me, it's looking like a chance to share with you uh, something that I'm very passionate about, which is Indian food. One of my favorite Indian restaurants, probably my all-time favorite Indian restaurant is in Tustin, and I'm going on a research trip this week (laughs) to Rasoi Curry Point. Wednesday lunch, I'll be there, Wilfred will be there, everyone's invited. We're going to do some research. Um, Well, this morning we're looking at Colossians. We've been in a series on Colossians, we're calling it First. The title comes from Colossians 1 verse 18, where Paul describes the purpose of Jesus' life, the purpose of his death, and the purpose of his resurrection being that he might have first place in everything. So in this letter, the letter that we call Colossians, he's describing why we would want that and what it looks like to have Jesus as first place in everything. When we're reading this letter, the letter to the Colossians, it's a unique letter because all the other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote were to churches and people that he had met. So he had spent some face-to-face time with them. Most of the churches he had started, he had planted, so he had relationships there. But Colossians is, is it's unique in that Paul is writing to a church and to a people he had never met. He heard they became Christians, and he had received a report on what was happening in their lives, and he was very encouraged about their newfound faith, and he wanted to encourage them in this. But he also heard about some of the things that were really unsettling to them. Some of the things that they were struggling with and they had some big questions about. And a lot of this had to do with the fact that they had become Christians, but they, upon beginning to live out their newfound faith, realized that they still had this experience going on inside them. And that experience was... This, this started great, this was exciting, there were some changes happening in my life, but now what? In some ways, I'm still the same person I used to be. My life hasn't completely transformed overnight. And they were wondering, what am I missing? Is there something that I'm supposed to do next? And other people in their community were saying, well, this is just natural because Jesus 
he's, he's a good way to start. He's a gateway. He's a gateway to um, being more religious and being more serious. So you start with Jesus and you become more rigorous in your religious observance. Others were saying Jesus is a great way to start, but he's, he's really just a gateway to a more mystical experience with God. It's about experience. Some were saying Jesus is a good way to start, but he's a gateway to spiritual disciplines and devotions. Those are the things that you're missing. Religious rigor, mystical experience, or spiritual devotions. And so they were trying to make sense of it. They were saying, is this what I'm missing? Is this what I'm missing? Or is that what I'm missing? Paul wrote Colossians to say Jesus is not only the gateway. He's the gateway, he's the path, and he's the finish line, and he is enough. This weekend, we watched uh, the movie, the movie musical, maybe you've seen it, called The Greatest Showman, and I thought it was a really good movie. Yes, we got some people pumped up about that. The songs are still, like, running through my head. I know it's not a completely accurate historical biography of P.T. Barnum, uh, but I thought it was a powerful movie, and at the heart of the story of the movie is the question, why is it that we can get what we want, or we can get what we think we want in life. But it's never enough. And there's a song at, at the heart of the movie. It's, it's called Never Be Enough. And, it, and I want to read um, some of the lyrics of that song. I'm not, I'm not going to sing it for sure. <laughs> Although I'm almost tempted. It says, all the shine of a thousand spotlights... All the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. This song, I think it captures so well that experience that we've all had in life. That whatever it is that we're chasing, whatever it is that we think we have to have, Whatever we feel like we're driven to get, it's just never enough. Never enough. In the movie for the singer, for the, the main character, P.T. Barnum, it was fame. It was the approval of people. It could be any number of things. For one of the richest men who ever lived, Nelson Rockefeller, it was, it was wealth. And he was once asked, how much money is enough money? You may know what he said. Just a little bit more. It's never enough. In Colossians, they were, they were looking for their lives to change. They were looking for something to fulfill them. And in Jesus, they had thought they had found it. But they were wondering, why does it feel like I'm missing something? You're telling me Jesus is enough. And that sounds nice. That sounds good. But it just doesn't sound reasonable. It doesn't sound logical. How can Jesus be all that I'll ever need? How can one person be enough? Don't I need to add to it? Don't I need to supplement to it? If you look at verse 4 that we just read, that so he just read to us, this summarizes why Paul wrote the letter to this church. He said, I'm writing, I'm saying this, I'm saying all this, so no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Paul's saying, I know what I'm saying sounds completely illogical. It sounds completely unreasonable. But in Colossians, Paul is saying, let me show you. Let me show you how the gospel brings a whole new logic to life. 
It's not unreasonable. It's not irrational. It's super rational because in Jesus, God's logic has come into the world. And there's a whole new logic at work. It's the kind of logic that's so counterintuitive for how we most often approach life and live. Yet, when we experience it, we can grab a hold of it. It's so satisfying when it's at work in us and when we see it at work in other people. So today, this morning, as we look at Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7, that's where our focus is going to be. We come to this part of the letter. Scholars of Colossians say this is the heart of the letter. This is, this is the hinge of the entire letter. In two short verses, the whole message of the letter, and even you could say the whole core message of Christianity is compacted into two short verses. The first half of the letter is summarized at the beginning. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Paul was talking about in chapters 1 and 2. The second half of the letter is going to be about how do we continue to live in him. And Paul is saying Jesus is enough for beginning and entering as a Christian, and Jesus is enough for continuing, for living as a Christian. You don't need more. You don't need something else. You just need more of what you already have. And I think this morning, this text, what I'm going to share, this is, I think, the best thing about Jesus. This is the best thing about Christianity, but it's also the hardest thing about Christianity. Whether you're new to Jesus, you're investigating Jesus, you still have questions, this is the hardest thing to understand about Jesus and the message of the gospel. We're so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here this morning to think about this text with us. And I want you to be encouraged because this is also the hardest thing, the hardest thing for us to grasp and to live, even if we've been Christians for many, many years. But when we get it, and sometimes when we forget it and we re-get it, this is the best thing about Christianity. So I want to focus And what I see is three essential parts of this new logic, this new logic, this new way of of living life that has come in Christ. We're going to take these one at a time. You'll see in your outline there are some fill-in-the-blanks, and you can follow along, and I'll fill those in as we go. First, this first piece of this new logic is learning to receive. Learning to receive. In verse 6, we come to the very first command in the entire letter, the entire letter of Colossians. This is the first time Paul has um, issued a command. And what is this command? He says, receive. Therefore, Paul says, I command you to receive. The first command in Colossians is an anti-command command. Receive. This is the best thing about Christianity, and it's the hardest thing about Christianity to understand and to do. This anti-command is what enables obedience to all the other commands. First, receive. There's a logic here in Colossians. There's a logic in the New Testament. Scholars call it the logic of the imperative and and the indicative. We begin with the imperative before we move I'm sorry, I had that reversed. I'm, I'm operating with the, lo- the wrong logic here. We begin with the indicative, and then we move 
into the imperative. The indicative is what is true, what has happened, what has God done? And then we move into our response. First, we receive indicative, and then we respond imperative. This gospel logic of Christianity is a reversal of the logic that we are so used to living by because everything else, the logic we live by, it's all based on achieving. We are wired, we are programmed to achieve. And the logic that we live by goes like this. First, you achieve, then you receive. First you achieve, then you receive the reward. First you achieve, then you get what you earn. First you achieve, then you get what you deserve for those achievements. We can think of this religiously. We achieve more good in life than we did bad, and then we receive the reward of heaven. We work hard. We receive the reward reward of a good life. Isn't that the way that the logic works? So much of our lives are driven by achievement. I know many of you here are, are students still. This applies to students. You achieve good grades, you achieve good test results, and you get into the school that you want to get into. When you're in college, what degree do I get? What GPA do I have? From which college did I go to? That sets my career path. And in my career, what have I achieved? What titles, what salary, what position? Maybe it's in our sports, in our hobbies, our activities. Did I get first place in my competition? In my dance competition, swim, music, did I get the award? Even in marriage, often it's seen as something we need to achieve and accomplish on the path that we're supposed to walk in life. And there's that cultural pressure, pressure, which isn't the Bible's view on marriage. As a side note, that we need to be married. It's something we need to achieve to be complete. Even in our recreation, we often can't stop achieving a couple of days ago on Friday, it was my youngest son, Luke's birthday, and we were able to go. Somebody had some extra tickets to the Great Wolf Lodge. It was our first time there in, in Garden Grove, a little hidden treasure in Orange County. Um, and so we were going, and there's water, water slides everywhere and pools. It's this giant indoor water park. They have these slides that you go down head first, and you slide down, and it's super fun, but it's also timed. So then all the competitive, competitive juices starts flowing in our family, and we're going down, and all my kids are like, I got eight seconds, I got seven seconds, I got nine seconds, I beat you. We're wired to achieve. Even when we're having fun, we want to be first. We can't stop achieving. But the logic of Christianity is the reverse. Receiving always comes first. And what do we receive? Verse 6 tells us, we receive Christ Jesus as Lord. It's not just information to believe. We receive a person. We receive him. It's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is described specifically in this way. Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul is compacting all the titles for Jesus into one short statement. This is a jam-packed, dense description of all who, of who Jesus is, his title as Messiah, Christ, Jesus, his earthly name, that he is fully human, and Lord, his full divinity and his authority. This is, this is shorthand. We can think of it as shorthand for Paul saying all of who Jesus is, all that he's done. 
that is what you receive, everything that he has achieved. So Christianity is not an achieving faith. It's not based on our performance and tipping the scales with more good than bad. It is a receiving faith. We bring empty hands. We bring our insufficiency to the all-sufficiency of Jesus and what he has achieved. We receive. Not something that we don't have, but we receive more of what we already have. That's the logic of Christianity. How do you begin? With receiving, with empty hands. How do you continue? How do you live? Receiving with empty hands. Learning to receive is very hard for people who are hardwired to achieve. And like many of you in this room who are really good achievers, who have achieved a lot. Why is it so hard for us? Why is it so hard for us to let go of achieving and learn to live with empty hands and to receive? There are a lot of reasons, but I think at the heart of it is that we desire to be in control. We have things we want to hold on to. We have things that we want to control and things that we want to happen in our lives. And so when we sing the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, we have a hard time emptying our hands and letting go. But Paul says, what do we receive? We receive Jesus Christ as Lord. He is Lord and not us. And so the options that are not available to us are receive Jesus as helper. Receive Christ Jesus as spiritual advisor. Receive Christ Jesus as life coach. Receive Christ Jesus as spiritual supplement. Receive Christ Jesus as a great teacher among other great teachers. What all those have in common is that we are still in control. Jesus, help me out. Supplement what I'm doing. They're all about our continued pursuit of achievement and control. But Paul says Jesus must be received as Lord. He is the Lord reclaiming all that is his. He is the one who is restoring all things to their rightful place and purpose. So just let's pause for a moment for a question of application. When it comes to first learning to receive, what am I holding on to? What do I not want to let go of? Paul is asking us and telling us we need to open our hands and to receive. Because what Jesus gives to us is always better than what we can achieve on our own whatever we're holding on to. Just as you have received, continue to live in him. We learn to receive. Secondly, we learn to receive first. Secondly, we, we learn to be looking to the roots, looking to the roots. He says, just as you have received, continue to live in him and being rooted and built up in him. There's two pictures here for us describing how we are to continue to receive. He says, receive rooted in him and receive being built up in him. We've got a botanical and an architectural picture, a plant and a building. We grow down with roots and we grow up being built. 
like a building. I want to take those two pictures one at a time. The second part of this new logic of life in Christ is looking to the roots. Jeff Vanderstelt's this quote is printed for you in your bulletin. He says it like this, Too often we focus our attention on changing the external rather than addressing the internal. The fruit of our lives comes from the roots of our faith. That's from Jeff Vanderstelt's book, Gospel Fluency. And I, I think he's right. Whether we're here this morning and we're Christians or we're not Christians, most of our attention, most of our energy is fixated on the externals. Our common logic for living is we look at fruit first. Now, I have a, a little slide here. I'm going to refer to this slide, a very simple picture of a tree. There is the fruit and the root. We're, we spend so much of our lives looking at the top half of that picture. How do we look? How do others look? We spend so much time focused on appearances, on the external, on someone's behavior or their actions or their appearance or their outward success or whether we or they are portraying the right image. We live in Orange County. We live in Southern California. It's all about image here. But the logic of the gospel, the logic of Christianity is the reverse. We look to the bottom half of that picture first. First, the roots, and then the fruit. Now, what we're not saying, what I'm not saying is that fruit doesn't matter and we don't look at the fruit at all. The Bible says fruit matters. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul prayed that they would bear fruit, that their lives externally would show change. But fruit, he says, is the inevitable result of being rooted in the right places, in the right thing. Jesus said, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much what Jesus called remaining, Paul here calls being rooted. And when Paul talks about being rooted, and when Jesus talks about remaining in him, he's talking about, they're both talking about our true and core beliefs. If you flip in your bulletin back to Jeremiah 17, our, our uh, passage that we looked at for our call to worship, or for our call to confession, I want to point out a few things in this text. In Jeremiah 17, the picture is the same of the flourishing tree. In Jeremiah 17, it says, The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in the Lord, is blessed. He'll be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Here's, here's how Jeremiah puts it. Whatever my trust is in, wherever my confidence lies, that's where I'm sending the roots of my life. So the question is, how do we look for our roots? How do we, how do we know where we're rooted? If our roots are the beliefs that we really believe, our functional beliefs, our core beliefs deep down, then these below-the-surface beliefs will show up in our actions, in our behaviors, in our reactions, in our emotions. And we could look at any of these and follow them down into the roots. But looking to Jeremiah 17 again, Jeremiah says two places for us to look to find where are we sending our roots are our fears and our worries. What are we afraid about? What are we anxious about? 
and we can follow these to our roots. Let me use an example. I'll use myself as an example in my own life this week. On Wednesday, this week, I was, I was working on the liturgy. I was actually working on, on this prayer and writing the prayer here on page 3 out of Jeremiah 17. It, I had a phone call that, uh, that morning, and I had a lunch meeting. And it was one of those days where I felt like I haven't done like 90% of the things that I was hoping to do this morning. And so I was driving to that, that lunch meeting, having already spent some time meditating on Jeremiah 17 and writing this prayer, and I was just filled with anxiety. How come I, I haven't been able to do? I'm not productive enough. I'm not fruitful enough. What's going on? And then when I was going to where I was eating lunch, it was here in Old Town Orange. I couldn't find a parking space. I got there at like 1 o'clock, and 15 minutes later, I finally found a space. And so by that time, I was even more full of anxiety. And I was walking from my parking spot to where I was eating lunch. And I just took a deep breath, and I said, okay, maybe I should do this. I should just ask, where am I rooted right now? Where are my roots? And that was helpful for me, just to think through, where am I rooted in this moment? I started praying using a few questions that I had learned from some mentors, from some other pastors. Praying myself into my roots and then out up into fruit. And it goes like this. I was, I was praying, okay, right now, what am I believing about myself? What are my core root beliefs about myself? And as I was praying that, I was just thinking, okay, Right now, I believe I am what I do. I am what I achieve. That my worth and my value lies in how much I accomplish, how much I get done, and how successful I think I am or others think I am. That's what I was believing about myself. Then I was thinking, well, what am I believing about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing? What what was I believing about who Jesus is? who he is and what he's doing and what he's done. Well, I was believing it's not enough. He needs me to complete what he's doing by what I do. He's not in control of my life, so I have to be. And what was I believing about who Jesus is? And this is where it becomes very honest. This is a moment of confession and repentance. I was believing that he's distant. He's uncaring. He's demanding that he actually expects more of me. And that he's stingy. He's holding back from me what I need right now in this moment. So as I was praying through these things, I was getting to the root. And it's, it's not comfortable to admit these things to myself or out loud to all of you. But that's, that's part of the practice of confession, of getting to the roots. These are the, the core beliefs that I'm actually functioning by. And so... How do I get back rooted in him? Well, you can pray those things back in reverse, and I was doing that throughout the week. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the Lord who made me. As Colossians says, he's holding me together. All things he's holding together right now. He's sovereign over all. He's infinite in wisdom. He's the head of the church. He loves me, and he leads me. He loves, and he leads his people, no matter how much I get done on a Wednesday. What's true about what he's doing and what he's done? He's reconciled me by dying for me. The one who is first of all and Lord over all became last of all, became servant of all for me. He loves me that much. 
He rose from the dead. He's at work now, powerfully restoring everything to himself, including everything within me that's still in rebellion and resistance against him. And what's true about me in him? What's true is I'm loved apart from what I do. That I'm valued apart from what, do I, what I achieve on a Wednesday morning or throughout my entire life. What's true is I'm never alone in him. And I'm forgiven for how many times I forget that. That was helpful, but I needed to continue to reroute myself in those truths. Seeing where I was rooted, fear and worry showed me that. And to reroute myself in what's true in Christ. In John 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. When you remain in me, you bear fruit. This goes against the common logic of how we live. We need to learn to look to the roots, not just to the external. Third piece of gospel logic in this text. We learn to receive, we look to the roots, and thirdly, we need to learn to let our lives be rebuilt. At this point, we might be saying, if it's all about receiving and not achieving, if it's about putting our roots into what Jesus has done and not in what we do, what about change? What about growth? Is it an optional extra? Can we just live however we want? And this is where these two, these two uh, pictures or metaphors, they go together. We grow deeper in Christ so that we can be grown up and be built up in Christ. Theologians have described how these two things go together by using the phrase union with Christ. That we are unified to Christ. And Paul uses the language of being in Christ throughout all of his letters. He uses it throughout this letter in Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 28, if you look there, he says, the purpose of my ministry is that I would present as many people complete in Christ, unified to Christ, to all of who he is and what he's done. But Paul also uses another way to describe our union with Christ. Throughout his letters, he says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But he also says, Christ in you. They're describing the same things with, with a little bit of a different emphasis. The emphasis of us in Christ is that our identity is in his finished work for us. Who he is and what he's done defines our lives. But the emphasis of Christ in you is on Jesus' ongoing work in us. If you look at verse 27 in Colossians chapter 1, there in the bulletin, there at the very end of verse 27, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the glorious wealth of the mystery that he's making known. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of being fully glorified, transformed, and made into the people we were meant to be. It's us in Christ, and it's Christ in us. Us in Christ, that's unchanging roots, based in Christ's finished work for us. Christ in you, Christ in us, 
That's where change comes into place. That's growing fruit. That's where he changes us. That's where we more and more reflect his glory. You in Christ, you are complete in him. Christ in you, he is at work completing you. And so the logic goes like this. The more we learn to receive, the stronger and deeper we are rooted in our identity in Christ, the more we will be built into something new by Jesus. The more we learn to receive, the stronger and deeper our roots are in Christ, the more we will be built into something new in Jesus. That's in contrast to our common logic that tells us it's up to you to build your life, it's up to you to build a career, it's up to you to build a marriage, it's up to you to build a family. Christianity says let your life be rebuilt by God. The implications of this, I want to share a few. The first is, if the logic is true, that we are to allow our lives to be rebuilt by Jesus, then it means that he is the builder and we are the building. And Jesus is saying that to us this morning. I am the builder, you are the building. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul explained this using the same two metaphors in a different way. He said to the church in Corinth, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He said, you, you are God's field, you are God's building. Both metaphors are at work again, the horticultural and the architectural. He says, you are the ones being built. God is the one causing the growth. He is the architect. He is doing the building of our lives, not us. And so... Hear this, what Jesus is building with us, it isn't what we would build of our lives if it was up to us, but it is far better, it is far greater, and far more glorious than anything we would ever build. It's also far more slow, far more messy, and far more difficult, but it's far better It's far greater and it's far glorious than anything we would build for ourselves. Rankin Wilborn, in his book on union with Christ, he describes it like this. It's up there on the screen. You are more and most yourself when united to Christ. He covers you. He shields you. He represents you before the Father. He also fills you illuminates you and animates you, making you more yourself and more human than you could ever be on your own. Jesus says to us, I am the builder, not you. He also says to us, things are going to get worse before they get better. The route from my home to my office, I travel down Irvine Boulevard, and if you live in Tustin or if you travel that road between Santa Ana, between the 55 and Tustin, you'll know that it's under like massive construction. So they're tearing out all the medians and everything's a mess and there's much more traffic and there's much more hassle going on. But in order for us in Tustin to enjoy these beautiful medians, things have to get way more messy, way more difficult, and way more inconvenient than any of us want. It's like that with God's building and renovating work in our lives. 
It's messy. It takes deconstruction. It takes demolition before we can be rebuilt into what God is making us. Naturally, we think about areas of our character in our life. When we think about being rebuilt, we say, I hope, God, you rebuild this. Rebuild my temper. I have a problem with anger or I have a problem with lust. These are the bad things that I do. I want you to rebuild these things. And Jesus says, yes, I want to work on those things. But he says, I want to keep going deeper than even that. We're also not only going to have to deconstruct those things that you think are bad, we're going to also have to deconstruct those things that you think are the best things about you. All of your goodness and all of your badness, all of it needs to be deconstructed because I'm going to build something new. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis picks up on this metaphor of our lives as a building or of a house. And I want to read a selection of what he says. He captures it so well. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in a roof and so on. You knew these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor in there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Christ in you. He's making you into something glorious. Something so stunning, something so beautiful and amazing, holy and whole and complete, fully human, fully alive to his glory. This is not a minor remodel. This is a wholesale renovation. The last thing that Jesus says to us in this is that I always finish what I start. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We want to be finished. We want the finished product to come. We want ourselves to be complete. But Jesus says, we're getting there. We will get there. You will be all that I have intended and created you to be. Just a couple pictures to close here. First, there it is. It's a building under construction. I don't know if anybody could guess what building that is. We'll go to the second picture. What building is that? We all recognize that. One of the most famous buildings in the world, the Empire State Building. So often in our lives, we get frustrated because we we look at that first picture. I'm still under construction. I don't like the way my life is turning out. There's so much change in my life that still needs to happen. Why can't I be complete? Why can't I be finished? Why do I still mess up? Why do I still fail and stumble? And we look at ourselves as that first picture, and we get discouraged, and we wonder, is Jesus enough? 
And Jesus says, I see that first picture, but I also see the second picture. I see you completed. I see you glorified. I see you as you were made to live and to be. Glorious, stunning, beautiful, holy, and whole. That second picture is how we are seen by him. He is bringing us there, and we are in process. In Jesus, you are not what you achieve. He says to us, learn to receive what I've done, what I am doing, and what I will do. Open up your hands. In Jesus, you are not what you are on the outside. Jesus says, I look at the heart, the roots. You can trust me. You can dig your roots deep down into me. In Jesus, your life is not what you make of it. It's not up to you to build your life. He says to us, let me build you into something glorious. As we have received Christ Jesus as Lord. This morning, if you have not received him, I would invite you, I would encourage you, receive him. As we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live in him. If you have received Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. He is enough. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, It does sound too good to be true that you are enough for everything we need, for everything we'll ever need, for all our struggles, for our failures, for all our yearnings and longings, you are enough. We struggle to believe that. And I pray this morning that you would help the roots of our hearts go deep, go deep into the truth of who you are and what you've done. I pray we would know and we would taste the freedom of living free, living free from defining ourselves by achievement, defining ourselves by appearance, by trying to build something apart from you. Replant us deep in the truths of who you are and help us to grab a hold fully with our hearts, with whatever we're facing this morning, that you, Lord Jesus, are enough. We pray that in your name. Amen.